Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Chris Waddell Name Tags Chat Podcast today, where we're with Sam Brew, who is a three-time world champion, silver medalist in the high jump in Rio, has the world record of 1.9 meters. For those of you who don't do meters, that is almost six foot three. Sam is also just finishing his first week of med school. Then he will go to Tokyo. Sam, thank you for fitting us into your crazy schedule. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. This is amazing. What is it like to start med school and know that you're going to leave really soon after you start to go to Tokyo to fly, what, 13-hour time difference? So I don't even know how long it's going to take you to fly there. You're going to land, you're going to jump, and you're going to come back. Like, how how are you wrapping your mind around this? Honestly, the the timing of it all is just, it's terrible. Um, you know, to come into med school, it's always, it's already such a learning curve trying to settle into an appropriate schedule, figure out how I'm going to learn here, what studying looks like, and just kind of, uh, adapting to the sheer amount of material that's being dumped on us. And so, you know, I'm trying to manage all that while training every day, um, in the back of my mind, knowing, okay, I'm leaving for a week and a half here, uh, in just, you know, 14 days. And so um, it's definitely going to be extremely challenging doing my work from abroad, trying to keep up with my peers. Um, that being said, everyone here at, at Michigan Medical School has already been so, 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 um, you know, accommodating for anything that I'm going to need when I'm gone. They have already, you know, expressed how excited they are for me. And, you know, all my deferrals are going through. They're very, they're very happy to provide, um, you know, opportunities for me to push back certain assignments and such. So, you know, it, it's all going to be okay. I'm just very much looking forward to this busy time of my life kind of being behind me. Okay. I mean, there's so much to unpack in that. First, if you push back assignments, I mean, it's not like you push back. I mean, it's, it's this, this keeps going. There's a momentum to it and you push back and that means you have a little bit less time, but you're, but you're doing it. How are you prepared for Tokyo? How are you feeling? How are you jumping? You had a sprained ankle earlier this year. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as far as Tokyo goes, I am feeling extremely, um, you know, prepared to jump there to the best of my ability. I jumped for Notre Dame track and field team for the past three years and just got, you know, top of the line training there um, and came a long way. I think, you know, my average height just went up, you know, considerably every year. Um, And also, you know, you mentioned the injuries. Yeah. I had two ankle injuries over the course of the past five months probably. And, um, those were really, really, uh, upsetting for me because I didn't know how those would go, but I, um, thankfully those healed extremely well, um, trained with my coach at home, Kyle Mishler all through the summer. And now that I'm actually at the university of Michigan, I am recording all my workouts and Kyle has given me live updates and live notes. Um, so, you know, I feel very well prepared. I feel like all my coaching is there. Um, my jumps are, are really, really consistent and, um, really looking forward to being in that competitive environment where you have the adrenaline going, you know, because um, you just can't really, you can't parallel that in practice. Um, and so the best jumps undoubtedly come uh, at the big competitions. But it sounds like you've also jumped higher in practice than you have, than you have for the world record. Is that right? 
So not, not necessarily in practice. So the world record that I hold of 1.9 meters is actually not a PR mine. Um, and that's just because I have jumped higher than that at certain meets that weren't WPA approved, meaning the results from those competitions wouldn't count towards Paralympic records. Um, and so that's actually very exciting for me because it kind of opens the door for me to you know, possibly break the world record at Tokyo, knowing that I've already jumped a world record, um, you know, on multiple occasions. And so, um, yeah, I, I definitely think it, it's the possibilities there in Tokyo. And I think that'd be just a really cool place to do it. And you're super consistent too. I mean, that's one of your greatest attributes, isn't it? That you, you're not one of these guys who fluctuates up and down, like, yeah, you know, your, your height. Yeah. And, and that's, that's one of the things that I am probably most proud of in the past five years since Rio is that you know, the, the, the highest heights that I've jumped have only gone up so marginally, you know, three centimeters, three, four, five centimeters, but I'm consistently jumping far higher than I was consistently jumping back then. Meaning, you know, a bad day of jumps now would have been just an okay day of jumps back in 2016. So that's what I'm, I'm really most proud of going into Tokyo, knowing that you know, even a bad day, I think puts me in a really good spot for metal contention. So if I can put it all together and have a good day, you know, I think, I think it'll all, it'll all be really good. Yeah. You have a great floor yeah. and you have yeah, exactly. a big event to mm -hmm. be able to, to push that ceiling considerably. Let's get a little bit of perspective. So, so the world record is about six foot three and your average door is, <laughs> is six foot eight. Right. So, so people who are kind of looking at their door, like that's, that's a bit, it's a bit daunting, right? Because when you are out there with just the bar, it kind of looks like, oh, okay, well, this guy and, and that person jumped over it. So it kind of makes sense. But when I look at my door in my office, I'm like, that, that looks really high. Do you, do you look at those things? Do you go down the street and see some guy who's like six, three, and you're like, I think I could jump over you. <laughs> so I don't necessarily usually do that. I have done it, especially when I meet, when I, when I meet guys who are like, you know, six, four, and I tell them my PR and they're so blown away that I could jump over them. Then I kind of start to think that's really cool. But, um, you know, on the track, I try not to think about that because it is easy to kind of get caught up in the, in the heights of the bar that I'm jumping over. You know, as soon as the bar is my height or higher, it can get really scary um, because you're having to get your entire body over effectively your entire body. Um, and so I try to just, you know, have a good jump out there and not consider how high the bar is. Um, but it is definitely cool to see comparisons like that. Um, you know, especially I've never seen it compared to a door, but that does kind of put it in a really cool perspective to think like, yeah, I can jump over the door. That'd be cool. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I would freak people out if you yeah. did that. <laughs> Probably like, hurt me a little bit too. It might, yeah, the landing might not be quite as good as landing in your pit, in your high jump pit. What, what goes into a jump when you're, when you're looking, so you said you're not trying to, to gain that perspective. You're just trying to, I mean, basically put it into abstract in some ways, right? The, the bar of like, okay, this is what I have to do. I have to get over the bar. What are the elements? How do you, how do you approach it? Yeah. So as far as high jump goes, one of the things that I think people who don't high jump don't really um, recognize is that everything, you know, 99% of what you do in high jump happens in the 10 steps leading up to the bar. Um, the approach is everything, you know, building up the momentum and running a tight curve and putting your foot out there and staying behind, you know, shoulders perpendicular to the bar. That all happens before you even jump. 
and then once you're actually in the air, you've pretty much either set yourself up to clear the bar or not. Um, there's certain very, very small timing things that happen in the air, you know, milliseconds. Um, but I mean, me and I think most Heidenberg that I talk to agree that once you're off the ground, you, you're almost black out a little bit. You know, you just kind of wake up on the pit, look up, hope the bar is still there. Um, and so when I'm thinking about what my jump is going to look like, I only really imagine those 10 steps. I only imagine my approach and the things that I'm, the cues that are going through my head while I'm jumping only apply to the time that I'm spending on the ground. Um, you know, whether that's building momentum, running the curve, you know, the things that I mentioned, um, no, there's not enough time to get in the air and think about doing something different with your body. Um, and so that's one of the kind of frustrating things about high jump is that um, so much of it is just independent from actually jumping. Um, and so someone like me, who's been high jumping for what, seven years now, that's kind of a, a good skill that they have is that my approach is super consistent now. Um, because if you're in your first, second, third year of high jump, it's probably not going to be as consistent and your jumps are thus going to be so much less consistent. So, um, yeah, it's definitely interesting. With the curve, do you, do you, do you imagine that curve? Do you, do you know, cause I mean, I imagine you want, you want to have the same exact curve that is okay. bringing you to the bar. And, and, and that's something that could be relatively easy to make a mistake, right? How do you, how do you, how do you ensure the consistency on that one? Totally. Um, for me, and I think for many other high jumpers, the curve is just the hardest part to perfect. Um, for me and a lot of other Paralympic athletes, one of the things that makes the curve so hard is we are using prosthetics or some of the guys I jump against are hopping. And so it's harder to get consistency with a prosthetic or when you're hopping, as opposed to just running the curve. Um, and yeah, I mean, when you first start, when I was first starting off to run approaches, you know, my coach would put duct tape down where each step should be along the curve so that I am just getting that muscle memory down. Now, not so much, you know, I know what it's supposed to feel like, but there's also just so many elements that go into the curve besides just, you know, where your feet are. So that's something that I'm working on right now. Um, you know, just before recording this podcast, I, I came from practice and my coach and I were talking about the curve almost the entire time, you know, how can we run this curve in the best way to set myself up with all the right angles and all the right pressures to, to have a good job. And so it's definitely super important. Yeah, because when you get into a big stadium, I mean, the, this, is, this is sometimes the challenge, right? Where you're, you're not jumping in a big stadium, then you're jumping in a big stadium and then shrinking your world down to go, no, this is, and none of that other stuff matters. It's just right here. And, and this is this is the work that you're doing. And it sounds so interesting too, because people are like, what are you talking about? Like, no, it's the jump part. It's not, it's not that other stuff. Yeah, no, and, and, and you're exactly right um, about how different it is to be in a stadium. And one of the things that I think most high jumpers would agree on is that when you're in you know, a big stadium where there's in a big competition where there's all this adrenaline going and you're so psyched up, so much of my, like my, my marks for my horizontal and vertical for where I actually put the tape to start from, those change entirely because I, I take so much stronger step that I have to scoot back usually, you know, three feet at least um, to actually jump there. And so in, in some ways, all the consistencies that I've, that I've worked on kind of go out the window, but uh, I'm, at this point, I know how to adapt that to remain consistent a lot, like to go with the, um, the bigger steps that I'm taking. And it is just such a different environment because it's not high stakes in practice, but you know, you know, as well as I do, when you're in the games, 
that's what you've worked for for the last four years or for you and you were every two years with the summer and winter games but uh it's just so much higher stakes and every step seems like it carries so much more weight right and that adrenaline well great and helpful hopefully you've got to channel it but that's that's also part of your whole high jump thing isn't it i mean it's like you're you're having your in run and then your jump is basically like resisting your in run right resisting your in run with that with that lift from what's your prosthetic leg right you jump off of your good leg and and lift your your hips and your leg with your with your good leg right yeah that's correct yeah i, I don't jump off my blade um you know most long jumpers go off their blade at this point in time but I've never seen someone high jump off their off their blade just because it's so hard to take it vertical. Um, so most of the mechanics of, of my high jump are the same as uh, a two-legged high jumper would employ. What about when you're in the air? It looks like it looks like there's there's almost more of a of a bend from your hips than than we're used to seeing with like the Olympic, where, where it's almost like sort of a three part over the over the bar for them. It looks like it's more of a two part for you. Is that is that right? And if, if so, why? Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point. I'm, I'm impressed you picked up on that. Um, that's kind of one of the things that my coach and I have struggled with is, you know, we can get so close to mimicking the mechanics of an able-bodied high jumper, but the prosthetic, there are just certain things that it can't mirror. Uh, one of those things is the penultimate. You know, if you're going to lower your body just so slightly to actually jump with the blade, you have to take a huge leap into that uh, penultimate, the, the second to last step, um, as well as at takeoff, just the sheer length of my, of my prosthetic prevents me from throwing my leg really tightly up and across my body. So it swings around, it kind of circum circumvents around my body, which still allows me to get the rotations that I need, the inversion that I need over the bar, but it is different. And that's one of the things that, I mean, usually if I knock a bar over, it's because my prosthetic kind of raked, pulled the bar off with me. Um, and so that's something that, that I struggle with. It's, it's a lot of it can be um, prevented, I guess, just from throwing your leg extra hard at takeoff and kind of providing that extra explosion as well as just getting the leg out of the way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is different in that sense from the mechanics that someone else would use. Right. And then when you get over the bar, it's like your hips drop and then and then the legs come all the way up. Right. Yep. Yep. So that's pretty much that's a lot of core as far as just tucking your chin, bringing your legs up. And the prosthetic sometimes does does lag behind and pull the bar off. And so that's something you got to work on. That that's just got to be the frustrating part. But but it's part of the game, too. Right. Oh, very much so. And that's especially what makes it frustrating is the fact that so often I will, you know, jump, land on the pit and just feel like it was such a good jump. You know, that there's no way that bar's coming down because I didn't even feel my prosthetic hit it. You know, it's like if it hits on the part of my leg that I don't really have any biological flesh there, I have no idea that it hit. And so it's just frustrating to uh, to learn that the bar came down that way as well, instead of just feeling it. It is just, I mean, it's just, it's part of the game though. And it's, and it's part of the game that you're playing, which is, which is the same It's the high jump is the same, but it's a little bit, in some ways, it's a little bit more interesting game just because you have more elements that you have to incorporate. Can you, can you describe what, so TC or F63, right? Is your, mm -hmm. is your class. What, what is F63 and how do you fit into that class? Yeah. So F63 is a newer classification that was previously identified as F, 4T42. Um, and basically the 
F63 slash F42 classification consists of those who are uh, above knee, single above knee amputees. Um, and so, you know, I fit into that as a single sort of above knee amputee, as I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but it also consists of a lot of guys who still have their whole biological leg, but have some sort of, um, you know, debilita debilitating muscular disease that starts from slightly above the knee and goes down. Or, um, you know, a couple of guys have, I don't even know what, what the title is, but they still have their leg. It's just, you can tell from their knee down, um, the bones, the muscles didn't form right. Their feet are kind of, you know, crooked. And so that's, it's kind of a, it's a simple classification, single above knee amputee, but there are certain nuanced uh, disability types that fit into that category as well, which includes that. Right. And so you, you lost your leg to cancer when you were a kid. We'll go back and talk about that in a second. But, but the, the surgery that you had was, was rotation plastic, which, mm -hmm. is, which is not super, super common, right? No, not at all. And it was even more uncommon when I had the surgery. Which was now like nine years ago, 10 years ago. Is that what it is? Yeah, wow. Nine years, I guess. That's crazy. 2012, I think is what it was. Wow. Okay. So how, how does this work? Because I read about it. And, and I think I know what I'm talking about. Mm. But I guess that you know what you're talking about much more so than I do. Yeah. Yeah. It is a wild, wild procedure. And actually when I first heard about it from the, from the orthopedic surgeon who gave me the option to pursue rotation plasty, I said, there's no chance I'm going through with that. That is, that is, that is crazy. Um, but basically what rotation plasty includes is removing, um, it's basically cutting above the knee, cutting below the knee, um, and removing the, the portion in between. So your knee, uh, and slightly above and slightly below, but leaving the blood vessels and the nerves intact. From there, you know, you've got basically your shin bone and your foot connected to your upper leg via uh, blood vessels and nerves. So you take that lower portion, the shin and the, the foot, rotate it 180 degrees, reattach that to your femur, to your upper leg, so that essentially your ankle and your foot line up with your other knee. Uh, such that your foot is actually facing backwards. So now, you know, my ankle operates as my knee. And, you know, I have my, my foot and toes pointing down and backwards, kind of operating as a stump would be that goes down into my prosthetic. And so basically what rotation plasty provides is um, it kind of preserves that additional joint. So when I'm walking, you know, I can, I can use my ankle sort of as a knee Whereas classic above knee amputees um, would have to kind of just flick the prosthetic forward because they don't have a biological joint right there. It's really confusing, to, especially without a graphic. Um, and it's definitely worth, worth Googling. It's a really, really great Mayo Clinic, um, you know, short video that describes it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's wild. So is your, is your ankle that becomes your knee, is, is that innervated or it's just sort of skeletally oriented so that you can use your knee fully fully innervated so no nerves were cut um and so after surgery for you know the first two or three months it still felt like i had my full leg um and there are still times occasionally where my right knee will itch well, i don't have a right knee anymore and so what ended basically what they did with the extra you know length of nerves was kind of 
tuck them in. Um, and so, so, you know, I can just scratch the back of my leg and sometimes it'll satisfy the itch uh, of my knee. Uh, so fully innervated, it took some time, you know, the brain plasticity for my brain to really recognize and acknowledge that the foot was now facing backwards, that it was operating as a knee. But now nine years later, it doesn't feel like a foot at all. It, it feels just, it doesn't even really feel like a knee. It just feels like its own independent joint that I can control in its way that works. And, um, you know, it's really remarkable how brains are able to do that, I think. That is remarkable. And one of the other things I would imagine is that you get the benefit of the bottom of your foot, what was your foot as the bottom of your stump. So then you get that, that skin that is the, that is really tough on the bottom of your foot that it, you know, a lot of, a lot of amputees have the issue of just that their skin is just so susceptible to yeah. break down. That's so a really bad position. That's a really, really good point that a lot of people don't recognize either is that, you know, the bottom of your foot is obviously prepared for weight bearing. It gets calluses. It, it, you can walk outside on the gravel and, you know, your foot's not going to be too bad. And so that's the same principles applied to rotation plasty is that, you know, I don't get as tore up as um, other amputees do. It still happens for sure. Prosthetics are, are still not super good at accommodating skin, but it's so much better. Uh, especially because most of my weight is actually held kind of on the heel where it can just take an absolute beating. Um, so it's definitely interesting. The doctors who, who did that are absolutely brilliant. Uh, I can't believe some guy really came up with that and gave it a shot, but it works wonders. Yeah, I mean, it makes, it makes sense now, but you know, when somebody, when somebody's floating that idea, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to cut out the tumor. We're going to cut out the knee, take the midsection of the leg and then reverse the bottom section and reattach it. And, you know, I, you know, how did the audience go there where people go, you, what are you going to do? Who, yeah. who are you? You're going to lose your medical license, like right now. Really, You got to have kind of a morbid mind just to put that thought together. I'm sure, uh, you know, after the first success came out, he was deemed a genius, but uh, definitely pretty brave to just come out and suggest that. <laughs> well, which is interesting too, because, because, We've talked about you high jumping, which is spectacular. You know that you can that you can almost get over most ordinary doors. <laughs> that that you've had this this operation, and it all it all sounds like it makes sense right now. But when you were a twelve year old kid, how did all this make sense, or or what? How, how do you digest that as a twelve year old kid? Yeah, um, that's the question, right? It was it was obviously such an incredibly challenging time for me and my family to be diagnosed with cancer, um, to be taken out of school, taken out of sports, uh, was just so challenging along with just all the unanswered questions. And you were a star uh, athlete too, right? I'm best kid on your football team. <laughs> That's the thing is sports were my life leading up to the diagnosis of year round athlete, taller, stronger, faster than pretty much everyone in my grade. And so it felt like all of that was taken from me. And, um, you know, when I was three months into chemotherapy was when the orthopedic surgeon kind of sat me down and talked about the options that I could pursue for handling uh, the tumor that was in my leg. And he laid out three distinct options. The first was a straight above knee amputation, uh, cut pretty far above the knee to make sure, you know, there were adequate margins. Um, I'd have to use a prosthetic and my stump would be pretty small. The second option was, um, what he called limb salvage, which was where they would meticulously pick apart the tumor and any uh, damaged bone, replace it with an artificial joint. Um, and I'd still have my whole leg. I would, you know, cosmetically look the same as I did before, just a few scars, 
Um, and the third option was rotation plastic, like we just talked about. And it took me no, no time at all to decide, yeah, limb salvage was a no brainer. Why would I opt in to have my leg cut off? Um, but as we kind of, uh, as we went with that, that decision and talked to the surgeon more, it became clear that this artificial joint that they'd use would be extremely fragile, that a return to sports would be pretty much impossible unless it was things like golf, maybe. Um, and even things like biking or going in the ocean could potentially be too much for that joint to handle just because a, a wave could hit my knee just wrong and shatter that joint. Um, and I just, I was not ready to accept that at all. That was not the lifestyle that I had lived before. That was not a lifestyle that I was ready to accept. Um, and, you know, one of the memories that I, I, I speak of most often is the moment that I really decided I wanted to go through with uh, rotation plasty was when I was kind of considering growing up how my dad would take me out to the backyard most nights of the week and we'd throw a football around, throw baseball, uh, go for runs, whatever it may be. And I got to thinking down the line, I wanted to be able to do that with my own kids and going through with limb salvage would render that impossible. Uh, so that made the decision pretty easy for me. I wanted to go through with, you know, having my leg amputated for the sake of returning to uh, the lifestyle that I wanted to live. Um, never in my in my wildest dreams would I have imagined that would include, you know, competing internationally as a as a Paralympic athlete. It was more or less just I wanted to to bike again. I wanted to be able to, um, I don't know, throw a football outside and not worry about it. But it definitely has come a long way, and I'm extremely proud of the decision that I made. I would wouldn't change a thing at all. Um, it, it definitely has given me the lifestyle that I wanted. How, I mean, you, so it sounds like you were really involved as a 12-year-old kid and you could understand what was going on. And I mean, the limb salvage, it, it makes perfect sense, right? This is it. It's like, no, no, I want to be as much me as I possibly can. Totally. And then he gave you the function side of it of like, well, this looks like you're you, but this allows you the, like, you know, the, the rotation plasty or whatever makes you more functional did you have enough like knowledge of of prosthetics of people with prosthetics to be able to kind of comprehend that I mean like Paralympics really what so this was this was 2012 so London in a lot of ways was the television breakthrough for the Paralympics mm -hmm. it's much bigger now but you might not have seen anything with the Paralympics prior to, prior to getting your leg amputated. Yeah, no, um, you know, in hindsight, I don't know if I was adequately informed of what I was doing, um, but you know, you kind of hit on it. It was extremely important to me at that time, even at 12 years old, to have agency in the decision-making process that was going on with my treatment, with the surgery that I was gonna do and how I was being taken care of at home. Um, and I, I'm really, really so fortunate that I've had healthcare providers who gave me the opportunity to speak out and to make decisions, uh, you know, on my own behalf. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I didn't know anyone that used a prosthetic. All I knew was doctor said it'd be possible and I think it would be possible for me. So let's go through with it. And, um, you know, I remember, so that was done in the spring and I remember laying in my hospital bed, you know, getting chemotherapy and watching as much of the Paralympic games of 2012 as I could and being, um, you know, inspired i was you know really excited to see what was possible with a prosthetic but none of that seemed remotely possible for me um you know i was 60 pounds down i was an emaciated kid going through chemo wasn't eating how could i even imagine going out and doing that myself when i didn't even know how to walk um and so 
you know, that, it was definitely cool to see what others were doing, but that dream didn't seem like a reality, didn't seem like a possibility, I guess, for quite some time. It's funny. How did your parents look at it? Because like I, I asked this, I asked my parents, I was doing a little project and I asked them, did you, did you think that I'd ski again? And they both said, no, no, we didn't think you'd ski again. You know, and it's like, did you have more optimism than your parents? Were they right on board with you? How did that work? You know, my parents and my whole family and really my, my entire small town of Middlebury, Indiana, from the day that I was diagnosed with cancer to the day I won my first world championship, they were in my corner. They were behind me the whole way. Um, and they really, I think, kind of reignited that flame in me to get out there and to continue pursuing my, my goals of returning to sports. Um, there was always the doubt in my mind and in a lot of people's minds of just you know how feasible that would be, what the extent of that would be. Um, and I mean, what would have been less than a year after finishing chemo, I tried out for my high school basketball team and made that team. And I think after that, I mean, it was, it was, everything was going, um, I wasn't going to stop. And so after basketball season, joined the lacrosse team and then joined the football team. And just like that, you know, I was back out on the field. I was back out on the court with my friends. I returned to sports and, you know, as I expected, as my family expected, I was not the athlete that I was before. I was still figuring it all out, but, um, the most important thing to me was that I had made that return. Um, and I think that was the most, I think returning to sports like that was what got me to the point where I felt so much more independent athletically. Like I felt like I could really pursue new things. Um, and that's kind of when adaptive sports fell into my lap, just kind of discovered it out of the blue and said, shoot, let's give it a shot. Because you were not a high jumper beforehand. No, no, never, never tried high jump, never did track and field until my first uh, adaptive sports competition, which was part of um, GLASA, an organization, Great Lakes Adaptive Sports Association. Um, they were having a track meet for adaptive athletes. My dad said I should give it a shot. And so I did all eight events that were offered for me, the uh, 100, 200, 400 uh, discus, javelin, shot put, high jump, long jump, because I didn't know what I was going to do. And I think high jump was the very last event. Um, didn't necessarily like it any more than a couple of the other events, but I remember um, Kathy Sellers, the former um, head coach of the Paralympic track and field team, she was there. She kind of pulled me aside and said, hey, I think, you know, you have some really good potential in this. And that was enough for me. So I just started working at that a little bit um, in my free time. And within the next nine months was in Doha, Qatar for world championships. Which is absolutely amazing because high jump more so than the other ones, right? The other ones are, are pretty straightforward, you know, in terms of like 100, 200. Okay, this is it. Start, run to the finish line. That's not that hard. <laughs> uh, long jump, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit different. Hit the board and jump. But high jump, there are so many technical elements that go into it. And and shot and disc and javelin, javelin certainly as well. Mm -hmm. But that's, it seems like one that you don't necessarily just run into, that you don't just say, oh yeah, yeah, I, I recognize that I had an affinity for high jump. And it's like, how did, how did you recognize that you had an affinity? It takes a while to actually even figure out where you're supposed to be in order to try to go over the bar. Yeah, and that's something that I didn't realize when I first tried high jump was just the sheer technicality of it all. Um, just that, you know, how many different origins of rotations there are and different physics that go into building pressure on the curve and taking off vertical instead of into the bar and the parabola that we track on our videos. Um, I had no idea what any of that was. I just kind of was drawn to high jump because 
when you jump in high jump, you jump off one leg. And that's exactly what I had was one leg. Um, and so I thought, hey, that'd be cool. Um, and I, I always was, you know, athletic, like we talked about. And so jumping was something that I was comfortable with. Um, and then the technical side of it came with coaching after that, as far as, you know, figuring out how to run an approach, figuring out how to arch your back in the right timing, tuck your chin, pull your legs up at the right time. That all came um, with coaching. I didn't know any of that. It was more or less for me at the beginning, just run and jump as high as I could. Uh, and that was fun. That was fun for me. I kind of wished I still had the ability to just run and jump instead of overthinking every single step that I take, but uh, I can't go back. Did you have any heroes, any, any high jump heroes? I mean, I, I say that for myself. I remember meeting Dick Fosbury and just kind of being like, whoa, like you're so cool. You totally changed this sport and see, I remember, you know, Dwight Stone with his, with his Mickey Mouse uh, t-shirt and stuff like that. But did you have any, any high jump heroes? You know, by the time, like, 2015, when I was at my first world championships, high jump was still so new to me. And it wasn't even something that I was taking that seriously yet. Um, so I didn't really have heroes. You know, I, I've always looked up to my coach, Kyle Mechler. He's only five or six years older than me. And um, so he's, you know, real close in age. And he's a, he was a high jumper. Um, but as far as like Paralympic high jumpers, you know, Jeff Skiba was ahead of me. He was a different classification, but he was a prosthetic. He was just incredible at it. Um, Roderick Townsend, he's a different classification again, but he, um, you know, those two really, I think, just showed me so much at the beginning of my career. And especially now, you know, we're at, we're at competitions like at trials. Roderick is still giving me advice as I'm jumping because he is just such a pro at it. Um, and I've always looked up to, you know, Mataz Barashin from Doha, from Qatar, um, who just shared the gold medal with um, Tambari, uh, just because he is, makes high jump look so beautiful. And that's always something that I want to do with mine is to make it look that easy, to make it look that graceful. You know, other guys, they run to the bar and they muscle with everything they have to jump and get up there and throw it all back. And it's, it gets over the bar, but it doesn't look as graceful as a guy like Barshin does. Um, and so there's, there's kind of a combination of different high jump heroes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it took some time for me to realize, you know, what I was doing and who I could look up to for sure. Yeah. And I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, it's sort of like the parabola that you're talking about that you're going over the bar and also thinking about the height of it. I mean, like it's going over this bar, but you know, if you had the ability to palm a basketball with your foot, you could probably like dunk, you know, as, with your foot as you're going over the bar kind of thing. Like it's, it, 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 there's so much time. There's time in the air, which allows that to be beautiful. And it sounds like that beauty part of it the aesthetic is something that actually that's important to you not just the results yeah yeah I, I think so it's not something that I really actively think about because you know when I'm training I'm thinking about the minute little details you know what I'm doing at a, a certain time um, but when I do watch video after a big competition where I'm jumping higher than I was in practice and I see how it all comes together and how I'm just exploding off the ground it really is. It is so exciting to me to just see the comparison between, you know, the pros that I've looked up to forever um, and my jump, because I think I didn't used to have that at all. And it's really starting to come together. Then, um, and, and I think it is such an elegant event that I think a lot of other events lack, sorry, um, that if I can, if I can put that together, it's, it's definitely worth it for me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not something I think about during a jump. But it's also it's a confirmation 
that you're jumping like a pro that you look up to these guys and you're like, okay, like I, I've been doing this for a while. I look like a pro, like that's, that's pretty legit, isn't it? Totally. Uh, and, and I, I don't want to compare myself to a professional high jumper, but now that I've been doing it seven years and I have such, I think I, my eyes are much more trained to see things. Um, it is cool to see, you know, when I finally have the angle at takeoff with my foot out in front of me to see that come to action, um, you know, at takeoff, for example, and know that I've been watching videos of these pro high jumpers do that, trying to mimic, mimic it myself. Um, yeah, I mean, it really is definitely a confirmation that, of, of just how far I've come uh, as far as just like, I guess it's just proves the hard work that I've done because it's so hard to see that in high jump sometimes. Um, it is it is the most frustrating thing I've ever done for sure. Um, and so the good days are definitely, def you definitely got to take advantage of the good days and, and, and see those good things uh, to keep going, I guess. The mentorship thing is important to you. You've been on the receiving end with guys like Jeff Skiba, with, with Roderick Townsend, but you also are, are paying it forward too, like with Ezra Freck, who's who's under your wing, who's what? He's a sophomore, just finished sophomore in high school? Yeah, yeah. Ezra and I go way back. Um, and, you know, I him and I remember, we each remember this so vividly. It was probably, it was trials for Rio 2016, five years ago. Um, he was there. It was, I'm sorry, it was either trials for Rio or for London. Either way, him and his dad were at this competition watching. We were talking for a while, um, you know, before and after. And he told me straight up, he said, I want to be jumping beside you in Tokyo 2020. Um, and at this point, he was so small. Um, you know, he had just picked up high jump. But I, I could tell, you know, I knew, I was like, if you put together a plan and you do everything you can to make that happen i am so confident that you will be beside me in tokyo because i've seen that side of him. i know how competitive ezra is i know all the work that goes into you know just being him um and so i was extremely confident in what i said and i think he that kind of fueled him quite a bit knowing that i believed in him that i you know i was in his shoes not long ago um as well at that point and so to be in this position where you know he's like a little brother to me and he's also now someone I have to compete against in Tokyo. You know, we were in uh, Peru together for Pan Ams in 2019, and we, were, we shared the po We were on the podium together, um, you know, and, and he was in Dubai jumping with me as well. And it's just so, so, so cool to see that all come, you know, full circle because I see so much of myself in him. Um, and I'm just so proud of, as, uh, so proud of how far he uh, has come. Um, and I just know, I know come, you know, next, you know, Tokyo or next year, especially Paris, it is going to be, you know, lights out for for Ezra. He is going to be top of the flight. He is going to be jumping higher than anybody else. And that's when I know it's time to hang it up. But uh, until then, I got to keep going, I think. Well, he's only 16, right? So if, if you're talking about the Rio trials, that would have made him 11. Yeah. And, and there's a picture of us at that competition where both of us look like toddlers compared to what we look like now. It's incredible to see just how young he was um, when that dream popped into his head, um, especially now that he's manifesting it. You know, it came to fruition. Uh, it kind of puts it into perspective, just the age that he decided that's what he wanted to do. Um, he, he's, he's a beast. 
Well, it's, it's an interesting because, I mean, you're talking about being the mentor, getting mentored, being a mentor, but he's also been in that position, like with Angel City Sports, we're creating a movement that is that is helping so many, so many people as well and empowering them. I mean, a lot of us, have, it's kind of like you've been an individual and you've had to make your way until you kind of find your your group. But he's helping to help he and, and, and Clayton as well are, are helping to create that group so that people have a community, too, where they can continue to learn. Very, very much so, um, you know. The Freck family, um, you know, Ezra, me, so many other athletes are equally as passionate about, you know, their competition as they are advancing the Paralympic movement about, you know, raising awareness for adaptive sports, providing opportunity for people with disabilities to engage in, you know, fitness and sporting opportunities, uh, as well as just kind of sharing the stories that so many adaptive athletes have to share. I think that's something that so many of us are passionate about, including you, you know, with this podcast, it's a matter of just growing the Paralympic movement. Um, and so part of that is, you know, being a mentor to, to those around you. I, I kind of lacked that for a few years following the amputation of my leg. And I felt so isolated in the world that I was living in because no one knew what I was going through. No one knew the challenges that I was facing. No one knew what it was like to be an athlete using a prosthetic leg. Well, as soon as I discovered that through sports, I realized there's a whole community of the of people like this who are so prepared to share their advice, to share their hardships. Um, and so there's, there's so much solidarity in that that I think, you know, Ezra certainly certainly um, understands just how important it is to to give back whenever you have the opportunity like that. Well, you said you were alone for for a fair amount of time, and going through that process, like in the hospital, it sounds like that's part of what pushed you toward becoming. A doctor how did how did that when did I mean you were 12 years old right so when did when did this thought spark yeah so I mean going I spent all of seventh and eighth grade year pretty much in the hospital going through chemotherapy um, and so during that time I obviously got to experience what it what it's like to be a patient what it means to be a patient you know how how vulnerable it is to be in that position uh, as well as just got to sort of see so many of the intangibles that go into making a good doctor you know, i had incredible uh, health team that took care of me and um you know when i left the hospital for the last time i kind of felt like i had these this book of lessons that i had learned that i wanted to give back somehow well at that point a career in medicine felt impossible. I went into high school pretty much with a sixth grade education because I had missed seventh and eighth grade year. So going to college felt almost out of the question for a while. Um, I was more concerned with just catching up with my peers, um, you know, academically, um, learning to walk, and then hopefully, you know, graduating high school in any sort of shape. Um, well, fast forward a few years, um, it became more feasible for me to go to college and ended up, you know, graduating top 10 in my class and going to Notre Dame um, through so much hard work. And then at that point I decided, you know, what the hell, I've, over, I've overcome so much already. Let's aim big, let's try to go to medical school. Um, and I'm here now finishing my first week of medical school. I don't know what the hell I was thinking, um, but um, you know, it, so much of my experiences have drawn me to this career where I'm able to give back uh, in the way that, you know, I think, I think it's very challenging to learn a lot of the things that I've learned um, like you can't, you can't learn in a textbook. You can't learn how to, you know, show empathy in a textbook. You can't figure out the bedside manner uh, and just, I don't know, just so much of what goes into being a doctor. 
you just can't learn that in a textbook. And I learned that the hard way. I don't encourage any of my you know, fellow classmates in medical school to go have their leg cut off or go get a tumor, but it is a very valuable lesson, some very valuable lessons that I've learned and I'm really excited to be able to give, give back, I guess. Well, because you know the possibilities as well, right? And, and, and that works for some people. Other people are like, look, you know what? I'm not jumping over any bar anywhere. I, I have no desire whatsoever to do that. But even if that's the case, you can speak to quality of life. Totally. You know, I feel like I was given a second chance. Um, I've, I, seen, I saw just how quickly everything can be taken from me. You know, I was, I was diagnosed on Christmas Eve of 2011. Um, and my life just came to an absolute stop, you know, not just for the next week, but for the next two years. Um, and I was just felt like I was kind of just dumped out into the real world with no idea where I was going to go. But I knew that I was given a second chance on life. I knew that, you know, getting out of cancer treatment was not a guarantee at any point in time. Um, you know, a 60, 65 percent um, survival rate, I think, of the cancer that I had. That's not a whole lot better than a coin flip. Um, and so. You know, and I, I, I knew that at the time, and especially now I know how fortunate I am to just be alive, let alone in the position that I'm in. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I set ambitious goals. I, I try to set myself up to succeed as much as I can, just because I know it could all be taken so fast. Well, I mean, our osteosarcoma, right? A rare bone disease. And when they put rare or rare bone cancer, when they put rare in front of it, that's a that's a bad thing because it means that there's no research going yeah, yeah. into a rare bone cancer. So you're, you're, you're left on your own and, and left with treatment that effectively is kind of like, yes, we think this might work, but it might not work because we haven't really seen it and we haven't seen it in the 12 year old and we don't have all the data to back it up. When did the, so, so you grew up in, in Middlebury, Indiana, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I guess that is relatively close to Notre Dame. When did the Notre Dame football team effectively adopt you? How did, how did that end up working out? Yeah, it, it was, it's really so funny to think about how that all happened. Um, so I was in the hospital getting uh, cancer treatment in 2012. This is before uh, my surgery to have my leg amputated. Um, there was a, an assistant coach for the Notre Dame football team who uh, liked to volunteer in the pediatric oncology unit, kind of interacting with the kids, just, you know, trying to lift their spirits, um, you know, really great guy. And he came into my room and immediately we kind of hit it off just because we both shared the passion for sports, especially football. Um, and just kind of, I think our, our personalities matched real well. Um, and so he started coming back and he kind of hatched this idea at the time to, sort of provide a two-way street of motivation in which I would be adopted into the team. I'd be, you know, their team, their brother. And as I would undergo my 21 sessions of chemotherapy, they would be beside me every step of the way. They'd be pushing me to, you know, continue fighting, to go through with all the physical therapy and to, you know, do everything I can to get back out in the field. And, and in reversal, I would provide them the motivation and the inspiration to continue you know, doing what they have to do to be the best team in the country. And um, that's exactly what it was. You know, they were my brothers. I was on the, on the field in the locker for every home game that year. Uh, Notre Dame went to the national championship that year and they flew out the whole family to Miami to, um, you know, to be there because so I think a lot of the guys really, what they told me is they felt like I was kind of the lucky charm. Um, that was just such a special year for me and such a special year for them. Um, and that really provided such 
such a powerful first step in getting back into sports was to be in that environment where I felt like I was part of the team. Like I felt like I was contributing to the wins that were getting, you know, happening out in the field. And so that was just critical in getting me back into sports. And I'm still so close with several of the guys today. Um, yeah, very, I'm, I'm extremely fortunate to have had that um, brotherhood that I did during the challenging times that I was going through. Um, yeah, no doubt. And now to, to have graduated from Notre Dame, um, to train every day in the same building that I was adopted into the team, is, it was just such a wild experience to just see how far I've come. Because everything that I was doing just seemed like it'd be so impossible based on how things were back then. Which happens as a result of a chance encounter, yeah. effectively. Yeah. I mean, and granted, you're bringing a lot to the table as well. It's not like, it, but but it's just, I mean, this is the, the idea of, luck is when preparation meets opportunity, right? Like you were, you were this kid who could be helpful to the team and they were good too, right? This was, I mean, national championship game, but undefeated in the regular season. Yeah. I mean, this is, this has got to be amazing. It's got to be such a cool ride for a 12-year-old, right? Yeah. And that's exactly what it was. And more than anything, not as it provided an opportunity to take my mind off of the things that I was going through. Um, you know, there were probably half the games I was out in the field or, or in our seats with a 10 pound IV bag strapped to my back and a backpack pumping through my system, you know, having to pee three times a quarter because I was getting pumped with fluids so fast, but I didn't think about it. I didn't care because my heart was out there on the field. Um, and you know, it, it was definitely challenging to find distractions during that time because the stuff that I was going through was just, it was heavy stuff, but that, that was definitely enough to take my mind off of it and uh, was so therapeutic in that way. Well, you said it went both ways too, as far as the motivation was concerned, but, but just painting that picture, right? So the picture is these gigantic man boys, you know, whatever. I mean, they're, yeah. they're in college. They're, they're effectively men, I guess at that point, but but I mean, there's still a lot of them are still really young, but like gigantic people. They're playing on Saturday. I mean, when you go to Michigan, you're playing for playing over 100,000 people in the stands. You're on national television. Like you couldn't help but be a fan of these guys. And then some of them are going to go from playing on Saturdays to then playing on Sundays. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, these are these are my buds. But at the same time, these are guys that you're looking up to but then how did it how did it work with with them we're like you know i mean i'd imagine you're like you're my hero but then what did they say to you <laughs> well so that's kind of what what something that made the dynamic i think especially funny was that i grew up hating notre dame i was raised a purdue fan and, you know, I lived, everyone was Notre Dame fans, and I thought they were the most annoying people ever, you know, it's just such a ridiculous fan base. So I was adopted on the team. And so, you know, that first year, I, I, I didn't necessarily have that fanboy type interaction where I was just so blown away by them, because I met them as guys first and foremost, uh, in the spring, and then I got to see, you know, them play football. Um, and, and, you know, especially at the time, of course, I, I looked up to them so much. They seemed like they had everything figured out, like they were just these brilliant, you know, man giants. Fast forward a few years, you know, when I'm in college at Notre Dame, I was friends with a lot of guys on the football team. And I realized 
no, that is just not the case. These guys are idiots, just like I am. They just want to have fun. Um, it, it really is funny to kind of make the comparison with the guys that I was friends with to the people that, to the guys that I was friends with, you know, back in 2012. Um, but yeah, I mean, you asked about um, kind of the flip side. It was, I, I think the biggest thing that pushed the guys on the football team was that they saw themselves in me. They saw my football highlights. They saw my basketball and baseball highlights. They saw a kid who had a pretty promising future in sports, have it all taken away. And they, I think, kind of were able to put it into perspective just, you know, how how lucky they are to have gone as far as they had without, you know, something preventing them from pursuing their their careers in football. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was definitely such an interesting dynamic that really worked so well to, to motivate everyone involved. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, it it was a very organic way of pushing each other. Um, you know, it wasn't them saying like, keep going, you're so strong, you're so inspirational. It was more or less just them asking me how my day was, hanging out, playing video games, you know, letting me hang out in the locker room. Um, and then that way, I guess, really pushing me to, I guess it, it was kind of one of the first, one of the only organic interactions that I had at that time, just because so much of what I was going through was either medical or, you know, people in my community telling me how inspirational or, or praying for me and stuff like that. So it, it was just so special. And people not even knowing how to approach you like, oh, this is 12 year old kid. His, his life has been taken away from him. And what do I say? The whole kid glove thing. And they're like, Hey man, come on, let's, let's play some video games. And you're like, yeah, cool. That's exactly. And that's, that's what I wanted. And that's what I needed was a step away from being that kid with cancer and just being a friend. Um, so that was, that was huge. It, it's one of the things I've seen just in sport. Like I, I've seen it with skiers. Like I grew up a ski racer and just seeing some of these guys who you know are Olympic medalists and stuff like that. And they're like, no, what you do is really cool what you do, you know, and they just, I think it is, there's a sense of you see your mortality kind of in, you know, like that, that could be me. And I hope I would do that or whatever, mm -hmm. but it, it's interesting sort of from the flip side to see these guys who seemingly have everything going for them going, no, no, what you're doing, that's cool. And you're like, really? But what you're doing is way cooler than what I'm doing. You know? Totally. Totally. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Um, how everything gets put into perspective. Um, it, it kind of humanizes everything. Uh, even your heroes can be humanized quite a bit. They, uh, they're people too. <laughs> it is. And it humanizes that journey, right? I mean, that journey in sports is such a, such a, you know, it's such a microcosm of everything that we do, right? Where it's like, yeah, you're going to get beaten up. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. Miss and you've got to figure out how to, how to move forward from that and find yep. a way to succeed. They've, talked about your mental toughness as one of your greatest attributes. Mm -hmm. Have you always been mentally tough? Because it's easy to look at it and go, oh, he's mentally tough as a result of 200 days in the hospital of going through chemotherapy. Like he had to become tough, but were you always tough? You know, I don't think I... I think I was always mentally tough, but I didn't ever use it until I had no choice. Um, you know, when I was diagnosed with cancer before that, you know, I was, I was a mature kid. I was a smart kid or whatever, but um, I was spoiled. You know, I cried when I struck out, I gave up easily. Um, and it wasn't until everything was taken away from me that I had no choice, but to be mentally strong. And I think it was all inside of me the whole time. Um, but I mean, like I said, I had no choice. And uh, it became pretty clear to me quick, uh, 
became clear to me pretty quickly that, you know, sulking and feeling bad for myself was totally um, appropriate at the time. It, it, no one blamed me for feeling sorry for myself, but it got me nowhere. It got me, you know, no steps closer to pursuing my dreams. It didn't teach me how to walk. It didn't get me any closer to being cancer free. Um, and so I decided, you know, enough with that. Let's, let's try to take as much of my life back into my hands as possible. Let's get some agency here and let's, um, you know, control the things that I can control. And I think that's what my mental strength kind of manifests itself as is controlling the things that I can control. Um, you know, a cancer diagnosis that's out of my control, but what I do with that, um, you know, was in my hands. And I think that's what's allowed me to be in the position that I'm in today. Um, you know, working hard to, to, I guess, achieve the things that I want to achieve, setting myself up, self up to succeed. Um, and, you know, you kind of hit on it earlier. It's like, yeah, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Um, I learned that pretty quickly when I was going through cancer treatment, that hard work goes a long way, especially when you set yourself up to succeed. Um, so yeah, I mean, the mental strength's always been there. It's just sometimes you have no choice and I haven't really gone back, I don't think. Well, the, the trauma can, can show you, can demonstrate to you just how strong you can be. And you might think that you're that strong, but you haven't had to prove it. But that's survival. Can you take that, that sense of survival and, and continue to apply it now? to your every, I mean, you're, you're, you're in a sense of survival right now, <laughs> like surviving med school seems like a really good thing to do, but is that part of, or, or do you find yourself, do you, do you beat yourself up when you're like, uh, you know, I'm feeling sorry for myself. I really should, I should be as tough as I was when I was 12. I mean, so yeah, you hit on it. Like the lessons that I learned when I was going through cancer treatment have impacted every facet of my life and have continued to I guess, guide me in everything that I do. Um, there is always that perspective in the back of my mind that things could be worse. You have, you have overcome so much worse than taking a quiz in medical school. You know, you chose to have your leg cut off in the midst of 21 sessions of chemotherapy. You can go take this quiz, Sam. Um, not to say that I don't like recognize that things can be challenging sometimes. You know, I, I like to check in on myself and recalibrate and recognize that yeah, I've been through worse, but this is still pretty hard. Um, but there is always, I think, that perspective that um, it, it, I guess the way that that perspective, I guess, manifests itself is me not being afraid to do things that I would have previously been afraid to do. You know, me going to medical school would have petrified me. Um, I think, you know, the kid who hadn't gone through cancer, but it doesn't scare me like it, like it would have because I know that I'm able to adapt. I've adapted to so much. I've overcome so much more. This is just one step on the journey. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there is that, that the mortality perspective is so important to me, I think. And has that become instinct then? I mean, it's like, I, I'm going to med school. I know I can do this. Or do you have to sort of sit yourself down occasionally and go, look, you know, Sam, you went through all this stuff. You can handle this. Yes, it's going to be hard, but or is it instinct? How does that work? I think a portion of it is instinct. Um, it, it rarely ever actually comes out with me thinking about all the things that I've overcome. I think more more so what it comes out as is me trusting the process. You know, one of my favorite quotes that I think applies to my life so 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 well is that 
you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. Um, and, you know, going through cancer treatment, having my leg amputated, none of it made sense at the time. Um, you know, returning to sports, trying out adaptive sports didn't really make sense at the time. But now, seven years later, I can look back and see how every single one of those steps along the way was so important in getting me to where I am today, whether that's, you know, academically or athletically. Uh, and so, you know, when I face challenges today, I, I think I'm much more prepared to think about or to, to recognize the fact that the challenges might not make sense right now. It might seem worthless, but a year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, it'll make so much sense. It'll be so crucial in, you know, forming the person that I, that I will become. And so it's a lot easier for me to just kind of power through in that way, knowing that, you know, the process will make sense. Sam, this is, this is awesome. We've taken a full hour plus of, of, I mean, I don't know how much reading you can get done in an hour and 15 minutes. And I'm sure you've got a bit of reading. So thank you so much for joining us. And, and we look forward to watching you in Tokyo. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Time really flew by. I didn't, I didn't realize an hour had passed already. <laughs> no, no, this was absolutely awesome. And, and we, I, I feel like I've learned so much just from talking to you. So, so thanks. It's on good luck in med school. That just sounds like a, like a, a tough road, but you know, you've choosing, you've, you're choosing tough roads, right? Exactly. Exactly. It'll all make sense. It will all make sense when you look back in 20 years. Uh, I think it'll probably make sense sooner than that as well. So, uh, so good luck. Thanks a ton to all of you out there. Thank you for watching. I hope you've enjoyed my talk with Sam. I, if you didn't, I think that that might be a problem. This was a great talk. So thanks again. The greatest thing you can do for us is please tell your friends. Tell your friends to tune in. We've got some great guests. It's really been a fun time. I learned something every single time I talk to one of these athletes. So please tell your friends. This will be a podcast on YouTube, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. Follow us, like us. Please continue to spread the message and we'll continue to have great guests. Sam, thanks again. Have a great go in Tokyo. Awesome. Thank you.